Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Hi, it's Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. Ever heard of it? It's Cindy. Thanks for checking it out today. We have Willie Carlisle on the pod, and I am pumped. Before we get into it, let's talk about the newsletter. So you can sign up for a very exciting monthly newsletter at basicfolk.com. That's a great way to stay in touch with us. You can also follow us on social media at basicfolkpod.com. And if you'd like to make a contribution, since we are a listener-supported operation, you can do so at our website. If you give at least $5 a month or $60 for the year, you'll gain access to Backstage, which are Basic Folk's bonus episodes. Very fun. In fact, our guest today, Willie Carlisle, is featured on Backstage, performing a song actually backstage at the Fresh Grass Festival in North Adams, Mass. And you can check that out if you are a contributor. And if you're not, you can sign up and get access all at basicfolk.com. All right. (laughs) It's hard not to fall a little bit in love with Willie Carlisle, the former high school football captain. And he'll tell you it was just for his junior year, by the way. The poet, madrigal singer, and proud bisexual is irresistible on stage and on record. He grew up an outsider, and the feeling remains into his adult life. In writing about his intense life, he's found an outlet, and in his music, we, the others, feel seen. His history is filled with complex experiences like having a musician father, singing in punk bands, getting a master's in poetry, and finding true home and community at square dances in the Ozarks. I got Willie to talk about a couple of notable contradictions in his life, including his unflinching willingness to lay it all out for his music, living alongside not trusting himself and believing that he can actually do this. He also loves highbrow poetry and punk rock, but he says, I don't want to come across as too heady, and I also don't want to be seen so punk rock that I lack polish. We talk about those contradictions and, of course, the music. His new album, Peculiar Missouri, is filled with songs that seem very hopeful, and these songs, even the protest songs, are coming from a place of love. Willie's not reached a state of queer joy, which he'll freely tell you about, but he's working on it. Meanwhile, his honesty, curiosity, and big heart have us hooked. Let's take a listen to a song from Willie's new album. This is a heartbreaking bisexual love song called Life on the Fence. And then we'll get to our conversation with Willie Carlisle on Basic Folk. Love him. I'll only answer when I'm drunk to the lead. 
talk about Memphis, living so rough that the strength in his voice makes me weak at the knees. Not sure what I saw before I looked in his eyes. We ain't star-crossed just cause stars might align. Ain't proper high lonesome till it's almost too sad to be true. But what happened in Memphis made too much sense There's a part of my life she don't know exists Why it's living a lie more easy than life on the face Why it's living a lie more easy than life on the Lily Carlisle, it's so great to see you. Thanks for talking to me today. Thanks for having me, Cindy. It's a pleasure. You, okay, so I'm really excited to talk to you. I, even though I just said that, I actually mean it. Uh, we got to hang out at Fresh Grass last year, and it was so fun. And you have such an interesting, complicated story uh, that I hope I get all of the details right. <laughs> um because there's like a lot going on with you. Uh, so I just wanted to put that out there. I'm ready. And you know what? I, I don't blame if you if you get it wrong, it's uh, it's OK. It's um, the truth is always complicated, isn't it? That's true. Yeah. Listen, that was a very Willie Carlisle answer just to set the scene for what we're in for here in this conversation. OK, so I wanted to talk about a couple of things that you're incorporating into your music. So in your music, you're bringing together not only your love of folk music, but you're also incorporating two sometimes adversarial elements, which, you know, it's debatable. That would be of highbrow poetry and punk rock. And I've heard you say, I don't want to come across as too heady, but I also don't want to be so punk rock that I lack polish. It seems like you'd rather not be one more than the other of these two worlds. So how do you walk that line? Well, that's a good question. Um, so when I was working in a used bookstore for eight twenty-five an hour in Northwest Arkansas, I uh, was like reading a ton, a ton, a ton. But I was pretty much only able to pay like $5 to go to my local punk shows and I would occasionally, you know, be the guy with a malt liquor beverage in the in the back, just with only what little I could afford. Um, which is to say that, uh, like uh, most Bohemias, in are full of people that are like that, that are working jobs that allow them to be part time artists or are in some sort of transitional phase or something like that. And and while I was working uh, at that bookstore, uh, I discovered the diaries of Henry Rollins. <laughs> <laughs> which so Henry Rollins published a diary, which I just thought was great for one, but for two, they were just fascinating. Like sometimes they were, it was just like just a poem. Other times it was like two paragraphs about how everybody was a phony. Um, and a lot of the times they were these like really beautiful Whitmanic meditations. Uh, you know, oftentimes just like a couple sentences long about uh, what we're here to do on this earth. And I guess um, sometimes uh, length or intellectual language or, uh, you know, loftiness will preclude something that's actually meaningful. 
Um, and sometimes uh, the same thing can be said of ensuring that something is significant, is, is I guess, punk enough. If by mm. punk you mean um, like uh, uh, in the hot topic sort of way, um, people want to <laughs> feel smart and people want to feel like they're part of a scene too. But both of those things can kind of fall victim to um, marketing schemes and like cults of authenticity that make all that shit fairly boring. Cults of authenticity, you mean sort of like gatekeeperism? Yeah. And and also maybe like in love with some historical concept of what the canon is or something. In literature, mm-hmm. we get that where, you know, there, there was for a, a long time a strong sense of what, uh, you know, American arts and letters was or something. And we also get it in music, especially in folk music and kind of genre music where it's like this is what's punk. This is what's folk. It's not folk if it uh, if somebody learned it from the radio. Uh, it's not punk if it uh, you know uses I don't know power chords in a certain arrangement. Gatekeeperism or like in love with a certain idea of of history and um, mm-hmm. and a, even if it's like a certain one unified outlook on the way that we should live. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've lived your life as an outsider. Um... In high school, you were on the margins of these two groups that you belonged to, the Madrigals, where you sang, and on the football team that you were the captain of. What's it been like for you finding yourself on the outside, and have you or how have you ever grown comfortable with it? Uh, I mean, that's a great question. Um, I've never really grown comfortable with it, but I think that I've figured out that I want to make music for people that feel a little bit outsidery and I want to learn music from people that feel a little bit outsidery um, because one thing that you can't do is if everybody feels a little, if everybody feels a little uncomfortable, well then everybody has to be a little more honest, maybe a little more vulnerable, which is I think what happens in like folk music apprentices and uh, apprenticeships and uh, punk scenes like as well as it's people that are uh, lifting them each other up kind of together Um, as far as whether or not I've grown comfortable I think that just now I'm learning to address some mental health stuff that made the feeling uh, like a part of any community um, uh, silly and um I don't know. Groucho Marx says, right, don't want to be in any club that would have you as a member. And uh, I think it's cool to kind of keep your options open, but also to be like an autodidact to never say like, hey, I can't do this. You probably can. You might be really bad at it, but you probably can. On the opposite of that question and speaking of being comfortable, it doesn't seem like historically you are someone who minds being awkward or uncomfortable. So I know I just asked you about like being comfortable with being uncomfortable, but how do you see that quality in yourself? And has that always been the case? I remember I was in a poetry workshop one time and somebody said, well, here's a poet of me. Here's a poet that likes to shock us and enjoys uh, enjoys writing poems that are like guitar solos um, with filthy lyrics or something. (laughs) And I was like, man, here's finally a compliment I can get behind. Um, I think what I mean is, um, in my performances, I want to try to do something that's different, um, and provoke a little, yeah, 
Um, but I don't. I want to be sure that I don't do it for its own sake. Saying the thing that's forbidden has interested artists for a long time, and it, it certainly interests me. But starting off with what's true, and then being like, okay, what's the thing that raises the stakes about that? I guess um, in you know, uh, Tennessee Williams doesn't put two deeply healed characters in the room together. You know, um, and while I'd be a fool to compare anything that I do to Tennessee Williams at all, I'm just saying that this is the dictum, right? Is that why would you put, uh, why would you write a song that had low stakes? Why would you try to amplify time in a song, you know, try to make something that was more meaningful that where the stakes were really low? Sometimes I think in my late career, I'd like to do stuff that was really, really comfortable like literally just graduate to just sh- shake your booty music, just kind of, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Play baby, the Eagles, baby. man. Yeah, I mean, that would be fun. I'm <laughs> just not at that point. <laughs> <laughs> you seem like a very curious person. Have you always been curious? And what has your curiosity looked like throughout your life? Yeah, I would I would call it um, insatiable. Like, a, <laughs> And the reason I'd say that is because I move on quickly. Um, I, I have the, the ADHD neurotype in a lot of different ways where it's just like, we're looking for that weird dopamine hit, that hyperfixation thing and trying to make art with that kind of thing, or just trying to make songs and music. It's made it really fun to stay curious. And, and especially that folk music has all of these fascinating branches and all of these fascinating options with which to like learn and teach and these are avenues that i'd I'd really be nowhere without so Hmm. like reading voraciously is one thing but it doesn't put you back in touch with people you can still be a shut-in and read a lot you cannot be a shut-in and learn to play folk music maybe maybe the internet will do that someday but right now you got to go out and you got to go to the square dance or the Mm two-stepping night and and party so usually when i am looking for things to ask um, guests about on Basic Folk. A lot of uh, how I process things is like through the lens of my own experience. Um, So I grew up as an overweight kid who had a big personality. And for me, those two um, characteristics were always like at odds with each other where, you know, I wanted to be smaller and smaller and smaller, but my personality was like giant. So I wanted to see how how that sits with you. Like you're a tall guy and you have a tall personality. And I'm just wondering from your perspective, how has that impacted you throughout your life? Well, first of all, just thank you for sharing that, sort of acknowledging that interpretive lens. And thanks for asking. You know, when you grow up in rural environments and you're a large man, and you come from kind of a you know regular, in some ways beautiful, in some ways horrible for the men it's supposed to help heteropatriarchy. You still get hit with a massive uh, amount of testosterone, <laughs> mm. and um, my whole artistic life I think has been defined by my initial interactions with my size, maleness, and. Um, my size, maleness, and strength, and queerness. And navigating that territory has been pretty fraught. I remember uh, I was literally going to a poetry reading, 
but I was, it was the times when I was sort of fashionably homeless when I was hitchhiking around and, um, a young woman ran across the street to get away from me because she thought I was following her. And then of course, uh, she's, uh, going to the same poetry reading that I am. And I remember like, man, I just appear so aggressive right now. And I started, you know, I, I took off the leather jacket and I, I remember like literally buying like lighter shoes to wear, um, so that I didn't, wasn't always like wearing combat boots and stuff like that. Mm. And, um, you know, being walking around in the world in a body where you could accidentally injure somebody can be really can be really awkward. It would be um, to paint myself as any kind of marginal would be flat stupid, right? At six four, three hundred pounds, white cis dude, right? Um, but uh, to be somebody professionally that processes big emotions. And is oftentimes doing that, at least according to some analytics for a primarily male audience. I do feel the importance of uh, of bringing as much of that hurt to bear, or as much of that context to bear as possible. You can kind of be the murderer calling from inside the house in some <laughs> way, if the if you know the if the house is the house that the masters built and you were born to inherit the master's hammer. I can use a really belabored metaphor there. I hope that answers your question. <laughs> it was beautiful. I love I love the way you talk. I'm very into it. I'm so glad. I get so nervous. <laughs> and I'm like, that, that was just like a big circle. I, yeah. <laughs> you grew up around music. Um, maybe this question dovetails off the last answer. Your dad was a classical trumpet player. I also read that he played bluegrass when he was younger. Mm -hmm. What was he like for you as a male role model and as a musician role model? Well, my dad had mostly given up music uh, by the time I was around. In fact, it was that it was kind of a forbidden thing that made it great. Uh, because I'm not sure that I would have followed in any kind of footsteps if it had been forced upon me. Unfortunately, I'm the kind of person where if you ask me to do something, I'm less likely to do it. <laughs> if you're my parents, Same. at least. I was, well, I wasn't, we're not an easy kid, right? So musically, uh, it was that the music was in the house. It was that it could be found. Um, and also that it was legends. My, my old man um, had another career in wine and beer sales, you know, with these like page long, tasting notes of microbrews and stuff like that. So in short, he would, you know, begin to stroke his beard and, um, and wax poetic late at night and tell stories. And it was those stories about him playing music when he was a kid. Um, I recently found out, and I can't stop talking about it, that he played, his first band was a polka band. He played tuba mm -hmm. in Lederhosen and they would drink beer and drive to, you know, different, event centers in rural Kansas playing folk music. <laughs> um, and, you know, like uh, John Candy and Home Alone. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, um, having other artists in the family definitely helps. And having, you know, I received no pressure. I received, you know, mostly mostly kind of a gentle encouragement to be interested and that was it. And that, that was what made it work. And also, just enough things were forbidden. Uh, you know, we weren't to be loud in the house. There weren't a bunch of instruments in the house. And um, 
you know, stuff like we weren't supposed to touch the records and that really helped me listen to all of them. Um, I know that you love the old weird America. Um, what does that mean to you? And what was it like when you first started discovering your love for that old weird America? And how does that keep you connected to ancestral roots? Well, that's another great question. My conversion experience could be several different things, I suppose. The seeds were all planted. The legends were all there. But I was on a bus to Washington, D.C. to poke around the Smithsonian to um, do some research on the poet Carl Sandburg. And uh, I only had one record on there that I had never heard before on my little iPod shuffle. And um, it was Utah Phillips' record, We've Fed You All for a Thousand Years, which is essentially a collection of... Uh, um, you know, IWW wobbly songs and poems, and also uh, the Harry Smith anthology, the sort of three records, um, the famous three records. And so that was really my total conversion experience. The aha moment, this is what I want to do with my entire life, happened on a like 16-hour Greyhound bus ride um, I remember I got off in Pittsburgh for about an hour and like wept looking at the stars and I had a shitty guitar with me, a little resonator guitar and, um, I was heckled for it. And I told the guy, you know, some guy getting, you know, anybody that's gotten on a plane with an instrument knows what this is like. Um, you know, somebody's just gently teases you for owning an instrument for whatever reason. I remember telling the guy, just fuck off. I'm a folk singer. And um, that was like, I think I was 19. Starting today. Right. <laughs> it's like I'd made up my mind. Um, in terms of how it keeps me in touch, um, it was my dad that introduced me to those um, folk singers, period. He used to run sound at a small festival in Kansas. And um, I've gotten to be in touch with a lot of these guys that my father knows um, or did know. and um, And also gotten to make real a lot of the places um, that were kind of legendary in, in, in the mythos of the thing. So I would say it's like I've been really lucky that my apprenticeships have been extremely tangible um, and my mentors have still been mm -hmm. alive. Um, mm -hmm. And I haven't had to learn that much from field recordings. And the same, honestly, in the Ozarks in Arkansas and Missouri, there's just still a living tradition of people that you can sit knee to knee with and learn from. Mm. Yeah, we've talked about that tradition on the podcast before. And also, I don't know if you've experienced this or not. This is just an aside, not a real question. Like a lot of younger people don't have that opportunity to sit knee to knee. And they've learned a lot of this stuff on YouTube, which I'm curious to know, you know, maybe we won't know in another for another 15 or 20 years as to like how that uh, practice of learning videos off YouTube versus like learning them from actual people. Uh, what that does to music, but we shall see. Yeah, I, I was I was in Brooklyn, and um, this great fiddle player Ben Townsend uh, was happened to be up there before he did a Europe tour, and I was calling a square dance. He was like, "Where are you from?" And I was like, "The Ozarks." And he just was like, "Oh, okay, good." And then played Ozark tunes that I had learned from the people that that he was he had learned from recordings I had learned directly from them. 
in a couple instances. Mm-hmm. And he played them about four times better than I did. Like, just <laughs> absolutely blew me out of the water. Which is to say, on a technical level, I see no... I'm in love with the internet. Who wouldn't be? It's For yeah. nerds, it's amazing. I do worry about... To, the community aspect to me is the most important one. But I also mm-hmm. acknowledge that great music can be made by banging on a log. And... Um, that somebody teaching you to bang on a log for the right reasons might be more important than the sound that the log makes. Hmm. <laughs> I love that. Wow. God. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's talk about being gay and playing football. Um, you grew up in rural, small town America in the state of Kansas and Illinois. Mm-hmm. These are true facts. The, Captain of yeah. the football team. Not senior year, but junior year. Junior year. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you were secretly queer. How did football help in terms of keeping that private? And what is your relationship to football now? I mean, I still love sports. I don't watch them all that much. Um, and uh, yeah, and I, I don't. I think I think of myself as bi or pan or or whatever. Um, there's a great manifesto from the '80s called "Everything That Moves." It's kind of an early bisexual manifesto that I really like. <laughs> and I like it especially because I could just mention the title and it just be like, okay, so this is now I don't have to explain it. It just is. Yeah. Um, I didn't have any language for it at the time. And I certainly wasn't given any language for it by either queer contemporaries that were in the schools or when you have the luxury of code switching anytime, why would you speak in the more difficult code? Right? And you just stay in the one that's easier. And path of least resistance. This is the same thing. I think in a lot of ways, this is um, the way a lot of people don't bother to examine privilege will be because they'll like they have the code cracked. So it did hurt me, especially when there was um, uh, homophobia and stuff like that. But for the most part, um, like, uh, Well, it was complicated. Um, I remember somebody telling me that I uh, dressed like a racist one time. I just put that in air quotes because I was in like flannels and listening to bluegrass music. And the same guy, when I told him that I loved him, um, he called me a homophobic slur. So it was a little bit like there was there was no winning. And um, I'm trying to find a language for it and sing about it. Not because I want to be pigeonholed in any way. Nobody really wants that. Or, you know, really anything can be subsumed into rainbow capitalism uh, just, you know, by nature of not being straight. But rather, I I want to sort of acknowledge that I'm not at queer joy yet. I'm still Mm -hmm. in queer sorrow, weird anger, or peculiar misery, to mention the pun that is the name of the next record. Um, yeah. And just kind of live there for a little bit with it. Yeah. As far as football goes, um, I was just following the path that seemed most reasonable for men that were like me to follow. Um, mm-hmm. I think that there's some desperation to try to fit in. When I got to college, it was like, oh, I don't have to do this anymore, which is to say I don't have to ever code switch again, I can just rewrite my own code. That's a weird mix of the two. It was just such relief. And I, 
I became vigorously disinterested in using my body to hurt other people. But I still am interested in watching other people uh, crack skulls on TV. (laughs) (laughs) Man, human nature. Um, I've heard you talk about that, that you haven't reached queer joy. I wonder what that's going to take. That's what I want for you, Willie. You know, I get it in I get it in certain moments. I also just don't have like it's not anthemic, if that makes sense. Like it doesn't quite come out of me. Yeah, I think it's going to be a process and I'm just stoked. Mm. It was the label. It was Frieder Records that saw the drafts that I had of songs and were like, we like this. We think that this is like emotional territory that you specifically are good at talking about. When I put those songs into a folder of about 40 songs that I sent them, I was like, I guess I just throw these in this C roll or whatever. So we're leaning in um, by we. I mean, you know, me and my friends and family for a minute. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to be there forever. Yeah. So something that you brought up just now is anger. Um, And it seems like that is a common narrative in your story. If you could talk about your experience with anger and where it shows up for you now and how has writing helped that process? I think sometimes writing is a symptom and sometimes it's a cure and um, that both can be pretty cathartic. Yeah. I talked about the master's house and the master's hammer. So I guess returning to that, it it can make you pretty mad that you were given the tools to succeed in late capitalism's apocalyptic end run. And that is really what I mean that I feel like we get prepared for. And then not wanting to participate and then not knowing what else to do And then the access point stays open and yeah, it feels like nothing can prevent you from being a part of a legacy that makes you kind of sick. So when I've in, when I've been engaging with anger in songs, it's usually because I want to be a better person because I want to acknowledge that I'm mad about something because I think it should be different. And um, I want to go ahead and, especially if I'm writing love songs, just go ahead and be mad at love because there's so many things that we're told about the way it's supposed to be. We're so conditioned to experience this kind of um, romantic love in a very specific kind of uh, way Mm -hmm. that is really gendered and... um, really dependent upon our specific, you know, the structure of our culture. I don't know. That's such a tough question. And I, I really don't want to beat around the bush uh, because I have written a lot of angry songs and I don't feel like, I don't think I'm done. Um, I don't think I'm done. I, I want it to not be apolitical. And that's mm. the thing that I'm constantly trying to check myself on is, am I just being pissed right now or Am I pissed for a reason that someone else will understand and that could maybe help somebody else? When you were studying for your master's in poetry, and this is maybe where I lose the narrative thread a little bit, Mm. um, you became disillusioned with the mainstream literary world. 
Can you talk about what that looked like and what was it like to be so disappointed by something you'd invested so much in? Well, so the reason I'd invested so much in poetry was because it was like a, it's because it was a path into pure aesthetics, like pure em, emotion, pure vulnerability, pure like um, expressiveness. When I found out really that everybody was rich and connected, and when I found out that my own voice was not very useful, that was when I became disillusioned. How did you find that out? Uh, well, so I went to a, I won some award and I got flown out to. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. Yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I went, you know, in my mind, it's just some award. I can't remember what it was, but I got flown out and I was the only um, white Southern straight passing man there, which was one of my first, like, I guess, uh, it was an experience with marginality that is not all that common for men like me. But the other thing was that I was the only person that wasn't coastal and that wasn't connected. There were people that were winning that had won Pulitzers wandering around the halls, leading workshops and stuff. And I remember literally somebody asking me why I worked construction when I wasn't in school, when I wasn't teaching. And um, they also were talking about summering at Martha's Vineyard with one of the aforementioned Pulitzer winners. And then when all of my poems got read through this lens where it felt like they saw my identity first, which is they saw a straight looking, tall, white Southern guy, I sort of watched people read my poems from that lens. And I was like, well, shit, they don't need me. Like this doesn't need this world does not need my voice at all. The experimental cutting edge of language doesn't need me. But maybe what does need me is history. Maybe what does need me is uh, is the past, is the burden that we end up carrying around. Maybe I should leave this territory so that other people have the potential space that I take up in the room and then go get weird in a space that isn't so weird. Maybe just start to screw that stuff up. Huh. That's such a powerful um, realization. I wish I had had that realization so many times <laughs> in the past when walking into a room and being like, this feels weird. Maybe I should leave. But good for you for, well, so for having that foresight. You haven't, you haven't, you've wanted to have that feeling. Mm. You, so you're saying that you've gone into a space and then wanted to, and then retrospectively wished you had left it? Yeah. Yes. It took me like, I think, eight years ah. <laughs> for what it's worth. <laughs> right. It wasn't like a, like a five second decision. No. Yeah. And, and if it, I don't think it was any of it was a waste. I think some of it was a waste. I think that mm. there's a reason why page poetry flirts with irrelevance. It is culturally irrelevant. I think songs can really reach people. I know that mm. poems can, uh, but songs just have, they just go farther. So after, um, or maybe during uh, this this journey away from the literary world, the poetry world, you were teaching yourself to play a bunch of musical instruments. And it seems like most of those, you were getting into square dancing and so most of the instruments you were learning were those that you could play at a dance. And you said, I would sing poems as I was writing them. I would play guitar or banjo while I was writing poems. Sometimes it would turn into a poem. Sometimes it turned into a song. How did you think to incorporate 
your poetry into music and how did it feel to like set your words to song and how do you relate to that feeling now when you're writing? Um, I've, I was always one of those annoying poets that insisted that there was no difference uh, between poetry and music and that um, there really was, it was entirely organic. There was never any difference. The difference was always imagined and, and put into circumstances contextually, which is to say, how annoyed would everybody be at a poetry reading if you brought a guitar? You can, I can feel those eyes rolling from, you know, <laughs> from a thousand miles away. Yeah, I, uh, I think that the answer is that it just wasn't any difference. I enjoyed that so immensely. When I got to the Ozarks, and I really, I, I did my first square dances in Illinois, but when I got to the Ozarks, it was like, okay, here's this community that has a need for music, that is doing these, I mean, these square dances would last all night. Like, we'd see the sun come up. And it, it was just a way to plug into a really welcoming, lovely uh, community that was sweet relief from the pressures of and for anybody that I worry sometimes, Cindy, that people will think that going to graduate school for poetry was a big deal. I always like to make it clear. I got C's and below. I was constantly late and I wrote some poems. But for the most part, I was trying to learn things about banjo music, fiddle music, guitar music, <laughs> old time music, square dances stuff. Because that community felt so much more welcoming and also seemed to be so much more of a place of uh, where I could make some kind of difference. I was pretty lonely in poetry school, and it was partially because I had another love that a lot of poets don't have. I insist that they're the same, but many poets sort of don't. about square dances because it seems like that was like a really important discovery for you um can you describe the scene you found there and how those parties came to give you that sense of community that you were looking for yeah i mean um it's like a mosh pit where you're not allowed to fall down uh <laughs> you know you don't get to mosh with the old folks and you don't get to mosh with children and um, there's no nobody brings their babies to the punk house show um, at the Corpse Fortress or whatever. Um, Are we moshing at the punk show? Uh, I mean, I am. I don't know what you're doing. Okay. I am not. <laughs> oh, <sir>. no. <laughs> I guess it depends on where you where you're at and when. I'm moshing at the Warp Tour in 1997. <laughs> <And> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Um, uh, Maybe I might be on the I might be on the edge, uh, ready to step out. I think um, even I think I really wanted my body to be used in those kinds of ways because of I guess because of football really is because I liked extremes. They were fun being extremely fucked up, being extremely dizzy, being extremely high was a way that I could get my brain to quiet down for a minute. And that's always been really hard. Well, moshing, right, not while square dancing. Well, while square dancing was the same damn thing is really what I mean. Oh, is, all right. Is that the, the centrifugal force, the best square dances that there are, 
in my mind, are Missouri-style dances because they use centrifugal force really well. They use available inert, and I don't know anything about physics, so I probably don't even really know what a centrifuge is if you demanded <laughs> that I learn it um, uh, or that I say it. It's um, all right. My audience is, like, really into <laughs> physics, so they know what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, so square dances are capable of using inertia in these amazing ways that are to me, like equal or better than the kind of sudden jarring movements of moshing or the 15 seconds of violence in a football play or something like that. Um, it's like groups of people using their weight in order to create these like patterns that uh, fall in and out of each other, like a kaleidoscope of quilt patterns or something like that. Um, and, um, that bodies in space can go towards a common goal that is teachable, that is easy, that's fast paced, but also has a component of risk. There is some risk. There is like some, you know, you are going to, somebody's going to take an elbow like a little bit in any given square dance or something, you know, it's not brutal right. or anything, but it's able to do that while st still being participatory so because I was so lonely, I got to Arkansas, I didn't know anybody. I literally, I cringe now to think about it, but somebody else that's a, a hell of a folk singer, I just showed up at his house with a banjo one day and um, hung out for way too long. And I just showed up the next day, totally unannounced. And I remember he was like, whoa, you got to get up. You got to get off my porch now. And it was that kind of loneliness. It was that kind of, I'd lost a, a lot of my community when I decided to go to graduate school, when I decided to be a 22-year-old that was going to teach world literature to 18-year-olds, you can imagine, right? So that's a decade ago now. But the square dances were where the community really came to me, uh, where I could be a young Peckerwood, learning a little bit of everything, where I could house-sit for people. I could know people's dogs and their children and stuff like that. And I, I think that's it's isolation that really hurts people the most, um, and not you know not just uh, not just physical isolation into individual family homes, but uh, you know the social isolation. I guess uh, you have done some theater, which uh, notably the award-winning one-man operetta called "There Ain't No More." What do you like about acting, and how did that stage work? help you develop your onstage presence during concerts? Well, I never thought of myself as an actor at all. I was working with an experimental theater troupe that was primarily based in social and civic practice, which is more like community organizing than it is theater. You know, like uh, that company, for example, did a play that was about, uh, based on interviews that were talking about how difficult the public transit was to use around Northwest Arkansas is a great example. You know, it's not, uh, it ain't Shakespeare, right? And I got into that through square dancing, but also just being interested in experimental stuff, stuff that was a little bit, a little bit weird, a little on the margins. And I wanted to do a one-man play that basically just allowed me to, um, use a lot of the voices that were in my head or the voices of people that I had learned from in a way that was able to, I don't know, coherently describe um, and give to others my love of American folk music. So 
That play used masks and puppets and had about 50 light cues. And um, I'm really that's proud. That's a lot of, of light cues. Yeah, it's a, for an hour-long play, it's a lot. It's a lot of, <laughs> a light. Lot of light cues. <laughs> and um, it came from the theory. People would ask sometimes at the end of the play, I couldn't tell which character you were being at which time. And the truth was that we were many different characters at once. That this was a person that existed in, like we all do, in a swirl mm -hmm. of histories, possibilities, uh, identities, and so on. And I think that it was, and that's literally stated in the show. Sometimes people were just, <laughs> it was experimental. Um, and we tended to win critics awards and then fill up half of a nice theater and have a great audience that did really like the show. I don't want to disparage it. Um, but also the other end of that would be that mainstream success was kind of far away because it was a little weird and pretty aggressive. You know, we talked about um, aggression. So basically, I got a lot of my ideas, crammed a lot of them into one hour. And now mm -hmm. I see my show as unspooling ideas every night and just approaching the spool and giving it a big yank because I got tired of looking at the same thread over and over again. Mm. Um, we talked about contradictions uh, at the beginning of the interview and two other contradictory attributes I've noticed in you is like your unflinching willingness to like lay it all out for your music. You've said in the past, I'm ready to grow broke. I'm ready to go for broke on it. And that being paired with not trusting yourself, not speaking up, and not believing that you can do this. Does that ring true for you? And what's that like when these two uh, attributes butt heads? Well, you've got the hard hitters here. Uh, <laughs> the truth is, is that I've never wanted to be anything but a working artist. When I decided to go to grad school, it was because I didn't know how to be a working artist immediately and I wasn't going to wait and I was tired of hitchhiking <laughs> you know as as anyone that's really been fashionably homeless will tell you it's a pain in the butt um, it's a big lifestyle choice when I think about whether or not I can do this like that's not really a question I will do it no matter what no matter how hard it mm -hmm. gets I'm always going to be doing it it is I, I, I do worry that the well will run dry, but I've never really had a dry spell. I thought during COVID, it's like, man, I'm having a dry spell. Now when I look back on it, it's like, oh, God, <laughs> there's too much work to process. Developing the discipline to make a living at it has been hard. So I premiered a storytelling show at a theater festival this week. I'm proud to say that we won like three awards at it and we... Uh, you know, filled the theater. It was amazing. But also I played at Freshgrass in Bentonville and I was also at Folk Alliance International in Kansas City. And I'm I'm in Florida now. And that's in one week. My I've actually hurt my knee <laughs> from moving too much. You don't have time for that. Right. So the thing that I really worry about is that um, I have no boundaries. And that's the thing that I'm really working on in that context is um, struggling with uh, uh, how much I adore. I really do adore every opportunity and I really do love to talk to people. I kind of binge on the aspects of this work 
that I think a lot of people are annoyed by. I love spending a night in a dive bar with strangers. Like, I just love it. <laughs> and I love, uh, you know, just there's so I, I'm trying to figure out how to t- best take care of myself so that I don't burn out. And being ready to go for broke is also uh, acting as if you have nothing to lose because uh, everything is fuck it all the time. And I want to maintain the impulse while occasionally being like, uh, thanks, but I'd like to go to bed now. <laughs> Every now <and> then. <laughs> That's a long answer, but a hard question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, the second album, your new album, Peculiar Misery. Let's say that it's it's out now. Um, the record releases July 15th. Mm-hmm. This episode comes out the day before. So unless you're uh, listening on the day the episode drops, the record's out. Uh, and you have some amazing songs on here. And your voice has also developed more on the record. There's this like warble, this like desperation in your singing that is like truly irresistible. So what do you think about your voice and how it's changed since you started singing? Oh, well, first of all, thank you. I'm I'm really glad you liked it. The voice is one of those like emotional centers, right? And I think that that breath and voice holds and releases uh, sadness and joy a lot more than Mm. other places. You know, your brain just holds thoughts, right? But I think that physiologically, I've been able to be more in touch with that stuff. Mm -hmm. I think that it's hard to capture. And working with Joel Savoy, the producer, he was like, was literally saying, how do we put you in a position where you can be most emotionally expressive? And because I practiced all these songs during COVID, where you're literally screaming at a, a, you know, a white wall that gives you the worst kind of feedback, you know, just flat Mm. blank, getting to sing in a studio where it was about the emotion was like pretty cathartic. And I did a lot of like, I did a lot of shaking and crying and like needing a drink at the end of the day Mm. in the studio. Um, But ultimately, and I do a lot of that on stage, honestly, but it's always a relief. It's always a relief. Um, Mm. I just want to stay in contact with that while also, um, becoming a better singer, um, and using, being able to use my voice as a tool that stays fairly sharp and make sure you go to bed on time and drink a lot of water. Unfortunately, those are the two big pieces of advice that everybody has, right? (laughs) (laughs) I did an interview with, uh, Wesley Schultz, who's the lead singer of the Lumineers. And he was talking about how he takes care of his voice and it sounds like very intense, and he's like, I can't drink or eat anything after seven o'clock, not even water. And I was like, whoa, intense. Yeah. I will. Um, yeah. You know, I, I've always kind of wished that my voice would go a little more, which is horrible. I shouldn't say that out loud. I should knock on wood. Um, but uh, I, 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 yeah, I don't mind. Um, it's good that its quality is not doesn't that the quality of your singing doesn't impact your ability to access the emotion. And I love mm-hmm. the elements of folk music the most that anyone can do. Because mm-hmm. so much of anybody can play a G chord and anybody can tell us what's on their mind. And the freedom mm-hmm. to do those two things feels like it's some of the, it feels like it's the most at risk if lost 
that it's the thing that is the hardest to do these days. And I think it's the thing that can help us the most. If everybody played a G chord and sang what they were really feeling in a way that released them, the world would be a better place. Uh, So before we get into your song, Life on the Fence, I wanted to ask you about your sexual orientation and how you'd like to be referred. Um, uh, Bi or pan are fine. Thanks for asking. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So the heartbreaking queer waltz, Life on the Fence, is indeed turning heads. Um, You said, I wanted to make the kind of country music that I needed when I was younger. So Willie, what is it like to write a song like this And how does that song help you fight your internalized homophobia and settle into your sexual identity? Wow. Well, so many country waltzes are about forbidden love. This has been done, right? Um, So many country songs are about forbidden love. It's almost like trite. But I had never heard one that was queer. And when I thought about what was forbidden and what still is very difficult I wrote that song and um, it was percolating for a couple of years, which is not that long for a song of mine. Usually they percolate for a couple of years, but it also took me staying in touch with the protagonist of the song and actually sort of trying to date. And um, what he said was like, you know, I know what it's like for you guys that, uh, you know, you won't ever actually date me. Because you can always go back to what's normal. You can always pass as straight again, date women again. Why would you want to date a, a gay person? And um, thinking about that, how it was forbidden on both sides, felt like that same no-win situation that, um, well, that all uh, pent-up love is in, that all trysts have. Um, But also here was an angle of it I hadn't heard. I'm not sure that the song is having me fight internalized homophobia, because I think on I'm I'm not really sure if it is, Um, because I I know what I think about that situation. I'd like to think I could date just about anybody. And I believe, you know, I know that I can, um, but I can't argue with his opinion uh, or with the opinion of the um, the other characters in the song? That's a hard question. Yeah, Mm. I'm I'm sorry. uh, What a tangent. You can focus me in if you like. (laughs) Um, So a lot of these songs seem very hopeful, and even the protest songs are coming from places of love. So how have these songs helped you find love in hard places? I've needed to write them, period. The titular song, uh, Peculiar Missouri, is this six-minute-long talking blues about having a panic attack in a Walmart and then holding someone's hand while they recite a poem. And that's really all it's about. But that came to me in a dream. And the reason it came to me in a dream was only because I have been looking for that exact kind of comforting. I wanted to write songs that were about love, even when they were mad about love, um, that had some some of that joy inside of it that we talked about earlier, that, that queer joy that is is has been hard for me to find. So it's like every time I get a glimpse of it, I'm trying to write towards it, trying to make it. That seems like it would help. Yes. How it do does. we find it? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, acknowledging that it's 
Oh, man. To me, Walt Whitman says, I mind how we lay in June on a transparent summer morning, and you parted my shirt from my bosom bone, and you plunged your tongue to my bare-stripped heart, and you reached until you felt my beard, and you reached until you held my feet. Tell me, have you struggled to get at the meaning of poems? Stay with me one night, and I'll show you the meaning of all poems, he says. So, in like the first pages of Leaves of Grass, right, he's saying like, Forget about figuring out what it means. Just like, give me a kiss, baby. And he's saying that to the to the reader, which is crazy, mm-hmm. right? But I had never, I hadn't heard that done in songs a lot. And I think about when I think about love songs, there's not that many love songs that are, um, you know, we all project our own situation on love songs, and that's kind of what's lovely about them. But just saying, I love everybody, all of y'all, what's up, is that that yeah. is what gives me some joy. Willie, let's do the lightning round. Enough okay. of this. I'm ready. What is the first song you <laughs> What is the first song you learned on the guitar? Horse with no name. What is your karaoke song? Working Man Blues. What is your coffee order? Um, traditional macchiato light foam. First celebrity crush. Oh, um, Robin from the Batman and Robin with Val Kilmer. I can't remember that, the actor's uh, name. <laughs> Chris O'Donnell. Your guess is as good as mine. We have I don't to know find that. <laughs> guess who was right? Me. You Cindy. were right. It's Chris O'Donnell. Right. <laughs> Chris O'Donnell. He is a cutie. Yes, <laughs> I, I, I have to look him up later. I just remember that. Uh, he was also on a TV show called Sliders. Okay. Yeah, but- no one's seen it. <laughs> who is the nicest musician you've ever met? Mm, oh, lightning, lightning, lightning. Nicest I've ever met. I'm, my my first impulse is Corin Raymond from Toronto. Mm. Uh, first album you bought with your own money? Uh, Baja Men, Who Let the Dogs Out? No. Yes. Oh, yeah. I was I in the fourth like we grade. talked about that. <laughs> um, we sh- talked about that at Fresh Grass. Did we? <laughs> that's, that's, it seems like At least very I'm being familiar. consistent. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. If I, what if nothing I changed if my answer? Consistent. I think oh. second was the collected Sam Cooke. Redemption. A little bit. <laughs> Flying or invisibility? Invisibility. Last one. Where is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? I think this intentional community called Meadow Creek in the rural Ozarks, Stone County. Wow. All right. Well, Willie, thank you so much for being on the podcast. The new album is great. I hope a lot of people hear it because I think you as a human being have an important message to get out there. Uh, And I think, I honestly think that you're going to save some lives, like for serious and for real. Like, I feel like people are going to discover your music and it's going to change their perspective on things. Well, I, I appreciate it. Thank you, Cindy. I appreciate it. I hope so. This episode of Basic Folk was produced by John Nungesser. Alex Stanton composes our music. We're on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network, and you can find all our episodes there. You can also search on the SiriusXM app for Basic Folk. Find us wherever you get podcasts or at our website, basicfolk.com. Thank you so much for stopping by and checking out the episode. Hope you go back and and listen to some others. We've got lots of great uh, interviews available And we'll talk to you next time. Thanks. Bye.